Good morning on this beautiful day. Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. I'm Bill Crossan with Knox County Friends of the Library here. And uh, today we are honored to welcome the Reverend Bob Calloway, uh, serving as the prior of the community of St. Ninian and his retired pastor of Metropolitan Community Church. Um, his extensive community service includes being a founding member of Habitat of Knoxville and a co-founder of AIDS Response in Knoxville. So welcome, Reverend Galloway. When Emily called and asked me to do this, there was a choice for two books. And I jumped it, you can tell just by looking, because when I do speaking engagements, how do you tell if a person is gay or not is always one of the questions. Back when I was in Iowa, in Waterloo, Cedar Falls, I was on the Human Sexuality Task Force at the University of Northern Iowa, and we did panels for our sexuality class. And the sexuality class had really nice room, and we would have a panel come in, and mostly jocks took the course because it was supposed to be an easy A. So they were all sitting in there, and one person said... How do you know if a person is gay? And the lipstick lesbian next to me said, Why? They all wear white socks. (laughs) And suddenly everybody's feet went up underneath them. (laughs) And I thought that was such a good way to respond because you really don't know unless somebody wants to tell you or in some way communicate with you that they're gay. Uh, You know, there's not much question about Johnny Weir at the Olympics. I mean, he fits every stereotype of a gay male. But the real thing is, is we develop stereotypes around these myths. And uh, that's what the three authors of this book talk about. And one of the interesting little comments in the introduction is simply, all gender and sexual identity is fiction. I really like that because it gets us out of this, we are going to be able to develop tests and everybody is going to be able to determine who is what. But it's all fiction. And the myths that they talk about in the book are developed to simplify complicated ideas. And so I like the book, but anybody that knows me knows that I can't accept anything at face value. So I had some problems with the book. And some of the problems I'll talk about as I go through some of their myths. But uh, what they want people to start with is the understanding that myths uphold existing social order. Almost every myth, even if it's myths that gay people have about themselves, are to uphold the social order. And uh, trying to somehow make things fit together so it's understandable. Myths erase the complications and the differences of daily life. So that's why so many people want gay people to be just like straight people. Why it is that that's really not possible is because we grew up in an oppressive society in which our experiences are different. 
our ways of seeing the world differ. Myths make uncomfortable questions someone else's problem. So in myth building, you put on others the complicated questions. One of the myths that the book discussed is all homophobes are homosexuals. That's a myth. Myths inhibit logical discussion. The big thing on that that I really have trouble with is when we had the first issues of AIDS in Knoxville and I had to speak to defend our church being in another church, one of the parents got up and said, we know all there is to know about this. And that's how myths are. Myths say we know everything there is to know, so we don't want to know anymore. Don't confuse us with anything logical. Myths help negotiate the personal and social messiness of life. When you simplify things down, you don't have to deal with the messiness. You can come up with myths that make sense of everything. Kind of. But it never makes sense of everything. And one of the things, even after you read the book and talk about the myths, you're going to find that uh, there aren't answers. All myths have some truth. You can tell who is gay by looking at them. We do have gay stereotypes. We have people who live out those stereotypes because that's who they are. And we have others who live them out because they think that's the only possibility in the way to live. And then the gay stereotypes become who we think all gay people should look like. Gender and sexual identity are two very confusing topics, and it's hard to narrow them down. One of the things from the introduction all the way through is these authors have a great deal of difficulty dealing with the fact that we believe the world is a binary world, that there's always this and that. I remember how enlightened I got whenever the pastor I was with in uh, Detroit said, uh, we need to get quit talking about either and are and start talking about about both and. And then I realized that's still binary. There's still so much more than both. You know, it's talking about all that is, and that's not just a both. And so they look at that and look at issues of the gender and how we binary that. There's male and female. Last week I noticed an article in the Gay Star News about Facebook. Facebook profiles now for gender, there are now 50 options. <laughs> yeah. 50 options for gender. And, and we've tried to contain everything in two. Um, sexual identity. Yeah. The great Kinsey study that everybody talks about has always talked about the continuum from the homosexual to the heterosexual and how the majority of people fall in between. There's a continuum of sexual identity and sexual orientation. And so trying to find one look for what does a homosexual male look like? How do you identify them? What does a homosexual female look like? How do you identify them? You know, 
I lived the most part of the sexual activity life of youth and young adults as an asexual. That meant I decided at age 14 that I was not going to deal with sex. And so by not dealing with sex, I really cut out any understanding of what was going on around me. So by age 22, when I decided it was okay to start dealing with it, uh, when people talked about gaydar, I had no idea what they were talking about. This supposed ability of gay people to somehow sense who else was gay in a crowd. I was in a gay bar and didn't even know who was gay. (laughs) Studies are starting to show that there is such a thing as gaydar, but it's not the special ability because heterosexuals also have the same ability to be able to intuit who is gay or not by looking at their own experiences. And I missed the whole part of that, being able to look around and say, oh, that person might be gay because they're exhibiting qualities like I exhibited. Because I just didn't deal with that, so I couldn't see those people around. And I know people in our community that are just very good at being able to say, I think that person's gay. And so they, their intuition is developed because they're dealing with all kinds of things. But when I say that scientist says that, the science that says that says that persons who use their gaydar are about 60% correct, which is just 10% more than the 50-50 chance. (laughs) (laughs) We have to be careful about that and intuiting that somebody might have that. But there is a real thing about growing up and reflecting on how you're growing up and what's happening around you that helps that intuition work. So do we actually have gaydar? Maybe, somewhat, but it's no different than the intuition that most people have. How many people are gay? Everybody knows that answer. It's 10% because that's what Kinsey said. Except Kinsey never said that. The Kinsey report never says it's 10%. The Kinsey report says at any point in time, about 10% of the population is engaging in homosexual behavior, desire, or fantasy. And that's changes. So his benchmark was in a three-year period, At any point in time, maybe 10% of the people are engaging in these things. They are not identifying as homosexual. They are behaving. The old walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. That's not true. I have a goose at home and lots of people, (laughs) lots of people mistake that goose for a duck. (laughs) Behaviors, desires, and fantasies can be very different than self-identification. We have a number of universities, organizations that conduct research every year to find out the numbers. So numbers that these other organizations come up with run 
from 3 to 6% of the American population may be gay or lesbian. Of course, we don't have a consistent definition of what that means. At least Kinsey didn't deal with having to have people self-identify. About five years ago, the University of Chicago did a phone interview with 1,500 people, I think it was, and they came up with about 0.3% were gay or lesbian. When their methodology was challenged, they said because it was a phone interview, there was no reason for people to give a false answer. Evidently, the University of Chicago did not know that the NSA was listening to everything people said. But gay people did. You don't tell on a telephone something you want to hide from people because somebody may find out. There's not a lot of trust level. We don't know how many people. At any point in time, it differs, and it differs on what we say we're measuring Transgender persons, the estimate from research is about 0.3, and that's about 700,000 people in the United States are transgender. So it's a wide open. We don't know what these things actually are. And to act like we do is simply a myth. We have some research that bases it. It's probably more at any point in time than we think. But now we have all these labels of self-identification. Young people in the surveys done now at university levels are saying that they are not gay. They are same-sex attracted because for them, many of them, gay has political connotations that they're unwilling to accept. And so uh, it's always going to be difficult to find out how many people are gay, and does it really make a difference? Whenever I started back in the Stone Age dealing with gay liberation things, it made a difference because we had to show that we had political power. And so we would use whatever estimate was really big. I think we're beyond that now. And what we're looking for is how, as a people, do we find the places that we can make acceptable and accepting. Also what studies are finding is sexual identity is not necessarily for a lifetime. It changes. It changes as we go through life, um, as many things in our lives do. The next myth they talk about in the book is all transgenders have surgery. I guess the first thing in talking about that topic is, what is a transgender? Again, we're talking about a binary naming system. Trans means you go from one to the other. And there's a whole lot of opportunities in there. It's not just from male to female. And we often get gender confused with sexual identity. So of the five people that I've counseled who are, consider themselves to be transgender... Three of them had reassignment surgery, and two did not. One of those three who had reassignment surgery was greatly harmed by that surgery. She uh, never mentally recovered from the surgery. 
One of them had to have the surgery because it was a male to female, and he called me one night and asked if I would come over to his apartment. And when I got there, there was blood everywhere, and he had started the surgery himself. The other one was just an amazing together person and just had no problems with it at all. So I think that whole range of understandings in the small group that I've dealt with is just magnified out there. Um, One of the persons I dealt with who came out as transgender at 65... (laughs) retirement and would have liked to have had the surgery but it didn't matter much she carried herself as a woman a powerful woman wouldn't take anything off of anybody and uh, was just an amazing example of a person who wanted certain things and it didn't matter if they were labeled masculine or feminine, she knew what she was after and went and got it. Another amazing person. And I think we find around us, when we're starting to talk about transgender, we get into all of these other things. We now talk about intersex. Uh, Persons who were born with both sexual genitalia. Um, And now there's that movement of these people saying, it's not up to a doctor or my parents to decide what sex I am. Because when I was young, it was quite acceptable for the parents never to know that they had an intersex child. The doctor just immediately did the surgery. And most of the surgery the doctors did was to keep the baby male because males had a higher status. And so a whole lot of persons went through a surgery that they don't even know they went through. They just know they had a great deal of struggle all their life dealing with gender issues. So we're getting to a point that we're accepting that. Again, it was that binary system. You have to be either or. You can't be something different. So in that system, we're coming to see that uh, I have a two-page sheet that I was going to bring with me and forgot to bring with me, that uh, one transgender community release that gives all of their preferred words to use when talking about Transgender is a person who feels out of the right body. Transsexual is a person who's had reassignment surgery. Transvestite is a person who wants to wear the clothes of another. And they go through for two pages defining all of these possibilities. It's just amazing to me. Back whenever I was first approached by a person that wanted me to help them go through Uh, the process of reassignment surgery, I had to start reading because I knew nothing. 
And uh, at that point in time, one of the sexologists in the United States that was well-known was John Money. And he said, even back then, that identity and gender are in no way locked in place. They're determined by genetics, by environment, by everything that happens in the womb of the mother, by every encounter. So it's not fixed. It continues to change as we go through life. I found that to be true. The second person I met after I just moved to a new location and was setting up house, the first person to visit the house was this person who informed me they were transgender and was a very masculine male and was going to female and asked me if I would help do the, his makeup. Well, I found that to be terribly absurd because anybody that looks at me knows that I don't care much for my appearance. And makeup was just a foreign idea to me. But we did sit down and talk about makeup, and I suggested some people that I knew in that community who could help. But we deal with so many issues and simplify it as all we have to do is have surgery. And that's not what a transgender person is going through. They're going through all kinds of issues. And as they go through this preparation, they're also being injected with hormones. And I have no idea what that's like, to be injected by somebody else with hormones that can sort of make you crazy. So we've got a lot to learn about transgender. We've got a lot to learn about sexual identity. And the people to teach us are those people that are going through processes who are self-identifying. One of the big things in the early 90s, and of all things that came out of the feminist movement, was the myth that sexual abuse causes homosexuality. There's some truth to that. There is a fact that when a person is sexually abused, they tend to try and stay away from the gender that abused them. That does not make their sexual identity homosexual, but it does say they try to stay away from people. How that's worked out, that myth works out, is it's the myth that keeps school systems from hiring persons who are gay or lesbian because they might abuse. You know, One sexual experience with a same-sex person is enough to change any kid. We all know that, don't we? That myth's alive and well. It's alive and well with the whole thing. We have to protect our children from gay and lesbian parents because they'll turn kids. So this, what do the studies say? The studies say, in the long term, it seems that sexual abuse has very little to do with sexual identity. And there's been numerous studies about that. So it's part of our fear of not knowing how people are turned into persons of differing sexual identity. So we make up stories. One of the big things around the whole issue of the priest scandal and priests molesting children, even those within the helping organizations around the molestation of children by priests have almost refused to admit 
that more girls were molested than boys. Our culture has centered on boys. Again, boys are more important than girls. That's what our culture tells us all the time. So we don't understand when we're talking about the sex abuse in uh, the churches that it really has been an issue for all children, not just boys. So is there anything that stands against it? There's almost everything. Every year, the FBI comes out with their report. And every year, it says that 90 or over percent of child molestation is differing sex. Less than 10% is of same-sex abuse. That's not to say that we shouldn't fight it. It's just to say we need to start getting honest. And one of the problems with all these myths is they stop discussion. Because if a person has been sexually abused, just to raise the issue of talking about it, raises horrific pain for that person. So we try to protect But in our protecting, we allow things to continue and not be open about our discussion of them. The other problem with children and sexual abuse is in every state in the United States, we have age of consents. And if you're not that age of consent, legally, you could not give any kind of consent. And those ages range anywhere from 14 to 18. And... Every child is different. Every youth is different. So we make a blanket statement that a 20-year-old who has an 18-year-old boyfriend or girlfriend has committed rape because that 18-year-old is not old enough to give consent. It's that whole myth of the innocence of children. One of the other myths they cover is children are completely innocent. That's a myth. Most of us try to deny our childhood. I was five years old my first day of kindergarten and came home and told my mother that I was going to marry this boy in my class and uh, quickly learned that that was not going to happen. Uh, So a week later, I came back and told my mother I was going to marry his sister. because she looked just like him. (laughs) And and a five-year-old. But we all have these things, and we all are children who see what's going on in the world around us. And even if we don't know what it is, we make up our own myths as children of what this is all about. And so when a child walks into the kitchen and suddenly all the conversation shuts down, they make up a conversation. Or the fact that we believe that innocent children will never tell lies, yet we have research study after research study after research study that shows by the age of two, 11% of the conversation of that two-year-old is lies. And we act like we can't talk about sex because we don't want them to know, instead of being upfront and being honest with kids. I have a friend who made Rick and I the godparents for her children when they were born. And uh, 
when our church office here in Knoxville was arsoned, she brought the eight-year-old with her to come and help at the office and uh, always had been honest with the child. And the child says, why would somebody do that? And Jan said, there's people that don't like them. And she said, well, that's crazy. Because that was all she knew was being around her godparents. That was the gay people she knew and coming to church. So what we do to children is to set them up so that there's no dealing with anything. I'm going to jump towards the end of the book. The 21st myth that they talk about is the one that got me angry. (laughs) The name of the myth, the 21st myth, is getting tested will stop the spread of AIDS. Well, that is a myth. Getting tested does nothing to stop. It tells you what your status is at that point in time. It doesn't stop the spread of AIDS. But they go on to say, and this is the word I have, the only safe sex is with a condom. And that just explodes me because a condom does not make sex safe. It makes it safer. But unless that condom's built like a tire, there's always the possibility of breakage. It's safer, but not safe. And I think why that hurts me so much is one of my worst experiences in the gay community was in 1981 being asked to do AIDS education. And when I tried to do it, I was mocked, laughed at, and not listened to because gay men did not want to hear it. They had just got to this plateau in which sexual freedom, complete sexual freedom, seemed to be at their fingertips. And they were not going to listen to anybody say that there was a disease that was being communicated through sexual intercourse. And so it was a very painful time for me. And I don't like people continuing that myth that it's okay if you wear a condom. Condoms help, and you and your partner need to decide if that's a risk you're willing to take. But you don't go and tell people, well, I use a condom so you don't have to worry. So, you know, that was my big problem with the book. And, you know, I don't know how many of you know gay writers, but Michael Bronsky has written many things. And he is a real radical. He's a gay liberationist that still is fighting that 70s fight for complete sexual freedom. I think he needs to back off a little and realize that he's setting other people up. As far as the rest of the book, I think that it's calling us to think. Think, think. Think about all the possibilities. And I love that about the book. I love the fact that there's more possibility. When we were talking, was that just Monday night, about same-sex marriage, at the men's group. And I said, you know, I'm really glad that the marriage equality thing is working, but I think that the gay community is too quickly being bought in because I think we have a lot more creative ways to do marriage than heterosexuals do. (laughs) And we need to be teaching heterosexuals these things instead of trying and struggling to be just like 
somebody we're not. So uh, that's my thing. I had a woman who used to always introduce my homosexual on the Bible things that I did to the persons with HIV and AIDS at the AIDS retreat. And she always used to say, don't believe anything anybody tells you about homosexuality in the Bible, not even Bob. So I'm telling you, don't believe me. But I would encourage you to read the book and find your own problems with it. Questions? Uh, Within the gay section of the sexual community, is there conflict or confusion um, among gay people about um, gender as opposed to orientation, particularly if someone chooses to transgender? Yes. Um, Most gays and lesbians know nothing more about trans experiences than anybody else does. Um, Whenever we had the political fights over INDA, INDA was the Employment Non-Discrimination Act introduced in 1974 and only covered gay males and lesbians. By the late 70s, bisexuals were included. In the 21st century, the major organizations were being petitioned by transgenders to include transgender in India. And they said, we can't include it because it would be too divisive and it would make it much harder to get the bill passed. In 2009, India included trans people. And in 2013, it was the first time that it was approved by at least one House of Congress. The Senate passed into, but it did not. I don't think it ever got introduced as a bill in the House. I think that the Republicans kept it bottled up so that it couldn't be voted on. So we have those same fears that somehow we're going to be mixed up. But the reality is that we're both pushed into the outsider category. And we need to learn more about each other. But it's been very difficult to work together. And we have great fears. Some of the men are terribly afraid that somebody's going to think they're transgender. Our society has told us much more about what it means to be a man and be a woman than even what it means to be homosexual. And so to violate those norms is scary. Thanks, Bob. One thing that sort of bothers me a little bit in issues of transgendered people is that the urge to switch seems to me to be related to the constraints that we're all under in this culture to identify one way or the other to the extent that someone feels that you know men are supposed to look, dress, and act this way and all women are supposed to look, act, and dress this way, then even talking about switching is backing that up, whereas we should all be working to try to dismantle that so everybody's free to act, dress, and look any way they choose. But uh, on the bright side, you might say, (laughs) as we have more 
estrogenic toxins in our environment and growth hormones in our food, this is probably going to become less and less an issue. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, I I think that in many ways transgenderism is much scarier for persons than talking about homosexuality because that means being so convinced that you're somebody else that you're willing to risk it all. I remember those early days that it was a five-year process. In most states, it was by law, it was a five-year process. You had to start with two years of counseling, a year of cross-dressing completely, then two years of counseling before the surgery with a surgeon. People can do it in a year now. That's sort of scary sometimes, but it gives people much more responsibility for their own bodies. And there's a whole lot of people that decide never to go through the surgery. And the other thing that's, if you look around people at the university or walking down the streets, we all have started (laughs) cross-dressing. Some of you are probably old enough to know that when it was a shame for a woman to wear pants or for a man to wear jewelry. And so I think that there is this mixing bowl of gender in which we're trying to figure out who we are and what we are and that being able to say it's okay and that other people can be who they are is just an amazing thing to me. So, other questions? If not, thank you. Um, that's the book. <laughs> thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knox.com. L-I-B dot O-R-G.